Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Since 2014, the world has been commemorating 100 years for the Great War, World War I. 16.5 million people lost their lives in that war, and its results changed the world forever. Among many influences, the one that is most relevant to the Jewish people is the liberation of Israel, then Palestine, from the Turkish occupation and the beginning of the British Mandate. This November, we're also commemorating 100 years since the Balfour Declaration. Signed by the British Foreign Minister Balfour, that document led to the fact that we're sitting here right now, this moment, with Kobi Hubara. Kobi Hubara has been filling up pubs and venues with his popular history lectures throughout Tel Aviv for years. He's a researcher of history, a writer, and a publicist, and he's with us to talk about the war we know almost nothing about, its effect on the Jewish faith, and how it reshaped the world. This podcast is made in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. Hi, Kobe. How are you? Hi, hi. Good evening, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me to come. So why is it that we know nothing about, apart from what we just saw at uh, Wonder Woman, Mm -hmm. of course, we know nothing about World War I. Why is it? Well, this is a war with a big problem of PR. I must tell you, because, um, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to First World War was the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the sequel came and everybody came also and so many dead people and so many interesting um, things that happened during it. But and unfortunately, the world actually, well, I can't say that the world actually forgot the First World War, but it was um, slided aside. It's by, the first time a sequel stole the limelight. From I the guess, original. I guess, yeah. yeah. Except but for Star Wars, of you course. Know, uh, Second World War is easier to, to digest because, you know, it's good versus evil, white versus uh, the darkness. And the First World War is much more difficult. Who's the bad guys? The Germans. Everybody. Why? <laughs> no. Why are the... the because the, Germans are always evil. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, it's that's just like everybody was evil a hundred years ago. Exactly, no? exactly. There everybody weren't any bad. good guys and yeah. bad guys. There were all bad guys and good guys because the average soldier was the good guy. They were the guys that, lost, the, that uh, left their families, left their homes and went on to fight for whom? The king? And the, for the, what? The, the Kaiser? For what? Exactly. You know, there was a, a special, uh, famous uh, song from the era called we're here because we're here because we're here uh-huh. and, and that's all and the bad guys were the generals were the um, the kings the czar the, the the emperors you know you begin the war with um let's see an emperor in britain an emperor in germany an emperor in austria uh, a czar which is an emperor actually in russia and the sultan in uh, in turkey the ottoman empire yeah so and you end this war with what with the Labour Party in Britain. Actually, I, c- I believe that First World War was the event that made the um, wide, wide lens to focus on the person from, from classes, from royals and their upper class, middle class and their laborers. Suddenly, people started talking about persons, about citizens. It's like mm. individualism? Y- yeah, and it's funny, funny, I don't know, it's strange maybe, or ironic, 
that the event that is commemorated as the invention of mass murdering by the government, the, the, mass, uh, the, the, the meat grinder of the Western Front, for example, that people, act, people um, disappeared into the abyss by shells and mortars and guns and, and, gas. and gas, of course. That was the event that actually brought in individualism or the idea that every citizen is a citizen because you cannot ask for people to leave everything and go and uh, fight for your king and then when they come back home after being killed and killed, being killed and killed others, mm -hmm. being wounded by, by body or soul, and then say, okay, go back to the mine, go work there for 12 hours a day, and do nothing and take no part in the public life. You cannot do that anymore. So it's interesting that you say that this is the war that brought about a focus on individualism because it started, I mean, you know, common knowledge has that it started from an individual. Yeah. It's like... Gabrilo Principe, that 28th of June, uh -huh. shot the uh, Archduke of uh, the Austro-Hungarian uh, Franz. Emperor, Franz Ferdinand. So, the, I mean, we all know that that's like, okay, that's the bullet that started the war, that's changed the world. But, I mean, it couldn't have been just one bullet that no, started. No, of course. There were many, many. The world was ready for it. So, it can you a, give us a little bit of context? I mean, a bite-sizable amount of context for what, what laid the groundwork for this war? Well, um, since men lost... Okay, okay. Let's start from the beginning, right? Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> so God created... Uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, you know, uh, talking about the origins of First World War can go back 100 years, 120 years. It can go back to Napoleonic Wars. It can go back to medieval times. It can go back to the, the Celts leaving Western uh, Europe. But... If we are looking at the end of the 19th century, you know, we, we love to say that the 19th century didn't stop, didn't end at uh, 1900, but at 1914. Meaning the old world, the mm. world of secret treaties, the, old, uh, the world of secret uh, diplomacy, the world of kings and czars was ending at 1914. And then four years and three months later, at the end of the world, the, of the war, the world was a new one. Um, for example, um, about a hundred years before the war, uh, Napoleon told Metternich, I'm, I'm unstoppable. Was I'm, Metternich? Metternich was uh, an Austrian, one of the um, heads of Austria, and um, Napoleon said, I'm unstoppable because I waste 30,000 men a month. Now, the first day of the Somme, for example, uh, Britain lost 60,000 men in a day. At the first week of the Battle of the Marne, France lost a quarter of a million men. Every day introduced to the world a new thing, new horror, things that the world was not ready for. You know, sometimes students ask me, uh, why did people go, what's so different about the Second World War? Why is it less horrible than the first one? You know, the body count was bigger at the Second World War, the horrors. I said, yes, but the guys of the Second World War had something that the guys of the First World War didn't have. Perspective. The First World War, exactly, that introduced mass, m mass death to the world, something the world has never shown, has never known. And um, Of course, I guess it's because the main reason for that is the Industrial Revolution, right? It, it is the, thi the one single thing that allowed such a mechanical means of murder. It's like, 
you know, for example, or am I mistaken? No, no. It's for example. Okay, you, we give, we all give our kids uh, uh, allowances, right? Well, whom of us that have kids? I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> actually, we're three guys with no kids are sitting here. But you know, you guys are giving money to your kids. The Sims in my Sims y- game. Yeah, but I'm not you, sure I don't have kids. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you don't really give them too much money because they don't know what to do with it, right? If you give a, a child like ten thousand dollars. He probably won't invest in some kind of good stocks. Right. Now, you take the old world of the 19th century with mustaches, with many medals on their chest. You give the world of the 19th century with classes, with royals, with old thinking, uh, too much technology, and that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. That is, that is, the, the world wasn't, let's say, mature enough. Mm-hmm. The uh, conscientious objectors, there were some, but there weren't uh, such a big crowd that can stop things. For example, let's talk about half the population of Britain, that's women. Mm-hmm. Women didn't have the vote. It's true that the suffragists were starting to do their thing, but only after the war they got the vote mm-hmm. in Britain, in Austria, in Germany, in Russia, in the United States. What's connected to all those places? They all fought in the war. France, for example, um, waited until the Second World War. Because if you've got a global war and you're using or or, um, you're asking all the population to help, you must give them something in return. Okay, but can we go back to the reasons for the war? Can you give us uh, how did the world look like before it and what were the tensions that caused it? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the, the tensions were all underneath the earth, underneath uh, subterranean, because if you were uh, a person of, let's say, a middle class during the end of the 19th century or you know, 1913, for example, you would probably think that the world is going to a beautiful utopian place. Technology is going forward. Um, physics. The, physics, electricity, planes and, and, and cars and medicine and everything looked like something that is going to the perfect place of the world unfortunately underneath the earth there were powers pushing and turning and shoving things from side to side things that weren't actually um, cleared or uh, known to the rest of the population like what like treaties for example like treaties between austria and germany between france uh, and um and Russia against Germany, between Britain and Belgium, and all this diplomacy was unknown, it was secret. And in fact, we were starting to talk about the Balfour Declaration. For example, the Balfour Declaration is a symbol or um, an example for the new world. Why? It's a treaty between a nation and people, right? It's Mm -hmm. different. It's not a nation and a nation, a czar and a monarch. It's people and the nation, it's known since the date was declared, it was published in the newspapers. You know, for example, on the same day, another treaty was uh, signed called the um, Lansingishi Treaty between uh, Japan and the United States about China. But most of this treaty was closed to the public eye. Mm -hmm. It was like all diplomacy, secret Mm. diplomacy. And the Balfour Declaration was the beginning of the new world, meaning no more secret treaties. We don't want to walk the earth thinking that everything is 
beautiful and going to a perfect place and then, and then suddenly by a one bullet shot by Gabriela Princip in Sarajevo the whole world is is sunk into a bad uh, uh, a, a, a bloodbath yeah so you have this intricate web of treaties mm-hmm. that basically just kind of collapses in on itself with one bullet shot yeah and pulls in all these different uh, agents into into this mass murdering uh, fiasco mm-hmm. but um, what brought about you know the things like the Balfour Declaration what brought about this this changing of perspective that you know all of a sudden it wasn't uh, secret treaties that were being uh, um, established between but w- now we need to tell everybody what we're doing now we need to have this open diplomacy why, why was that what was this shift that was taking place maybe was it was it I don't know the press was it journalism was it I mean journalism was there yeah journalism was there the public opinion was there but for example at the at the beginning of the first world war mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about the Jewish population of Palestine okay around 65,000 that's all let's talk about the outbreak of the second world war you've got almost 700,000 Jews in Palestine why was it just the Balfour declaration was it just the British mandate counter the uh, Ottoman Empire or was it the world jury disappointed actually disappointed from taking part in other nations mm-hmm. now the Jews weren't the only ones to be disappointed mm-hmm. I believe everyone was if you fight in the trenches for years for nothing for gaining a mile of land losing half your battalion after three months and you gained a mile and then got back two miles and you fight you know there was the first battle of the Marne and the second one the first second third fourth and fifth battle of Ypres why I believe the uh, um, the um, I believe that the people that had to suffer all that to endure all that started to get disappointed and not really relying mm-hmm. on their on the head of states and and Things had to be done or or else um, the uh, upper elite would lose control like what happened for example in Russia Russia started I the see. world as a monarchy well, well a monarchy almost Czar. almost uh, a theocracy I mean Nicholas the second actually believed that God have placed him there to rule mm-hmm. and they ended the world with what with the USSR and With, with with the with the uh, workers in the mines and the fields taking guns and taking over uh, um, st. Peterburg and, and Moscow it's kind of like the social contract started breaking apart at the seams definitely also the Jews who fought gallantly mm-hmm. in World War one returned home um, with medals mm-hmm. only to find that they are not looked upon by society mm-hmm. as a As war heroes who are not Jewish and uh, well in fact even during the war for example in Germany there was the famous or uh, infamous uh, Jew jury count meaning um, some voices started to say that the Jews are not taking their part in the war and most of them are profiteers are uh, industrialized person of interest that trying to gain money out of the war mm-hmm. and so during the war, 
there was some kind of a Jewish count, counting of the Jews in the German army, just realized that the Jews were enlisting um, more of their percentage in society and gaining iron crosses more than the other uh, nations. They looked at it as an opportunity, I guess, to prove their loyalty, the loyalty the nationality, to, this, to yeah. nationality. And some of them actually got back to realize it's not the case. It o- also happened in the uh, United States, for, for example, African-American uh, soldiers that got back and were lynched in their uniform. Which, was, which is something uh, shocking to us, that soldiers come back after mm-hmm. fighting for their country and actually being lynched in their uniform. I, um, so, so who fought who? <laughs> <laughs> well, it started, as he said, by the shot that Gabrilo Princip, a Serb, shot the um, Archduke of uh, Austro-Hungary that declared war on Serbia. Now, Serbia, as a Slav nation, had, a, let's say... The big brother you don't know about that lives next door, that if you mess with his little brother, you get slapped. So Russia came and said, well, if you're in a war with Serbia, I'm taking in. And Russia and France had an agreement that if one of them is in a war with Germany, the other will come. Why? Because they thought that Germany would not want to fight into France at the same time. Of course, Germany was in an alliance with Austro-Hungary. Now, Germany had a plan. They had a plan called the Schlieffen Plan. And the Schlieffen Plan says, we're going to invade France through Belgium and then drop on the head of Paris in four, five, let's say ten weeks. We eliminate France. They'll give us time to get all our troops back to the east and fight the Russians. Now, to get that, they, uh, the Germans have to go through Belgium. And Belgium had a treaty with England. With England, yes. With the <laughs> United Kingdom, meaning if anyone is going to go through or attack Belgium, we're at his aid. Uh, Italy started the war at the um, side of the Austro-Hungarians in Germany, but like Italy loves to do during World War, they switch sides. They switch sides. <laughs> and the US, also, well, and the Ottoman Empire, um, let's say they placed their chips on the wrong side. At the beginning of the war, they actually thought who's the best side to go with, but they went with uh, Germany, which was a uh, big mistake. Big mistake <laughs> and the end of the Ottoman Empire. And the US, again, like many other world wars, uh, waited till the, uh, the last year to join in. Why did they join? Ooh, uh, well, first of all, they joined because Germany was too big and too powerful and the war wasn't ending. That's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, the um, unlimited submarine war and the few American ships that were sunk. And the third one is a reason called the Zimmerman um, telegram. The Zimmerman telegram was a a secret telegram that was sent to Mexico, meaning if you'll attack the United States and be on our side, we'll help you get your uh, provisions at the uh, south of the United States back to you. And, well, Wilson, that his motto to be elected was he kept us out of war, actually had to declare war on Germany based on that telegram and many things that happened before that. And he sent his troops to Europe. It took him some time because the U.S. didn't have actually an army, a standing, a big standing Mm -hmm. army to send. They had to build it. And the army that was built was sent to Europe and gave the last, let's say, the last blows that um, 
made the victory possible. This is another example of how you said the countries or the world going into the war looking one way and coming out looking entirely different. I mean, the United States wasn't this world power that we know today. It was isolated. It was isolated by choice, of course. Yeah. Saying we don't have to go across the Atlantic to fight dragons yeah to slay drag to look for dragons to slay actually i believe that was the phrase yes and the u.s understood that it has to take its part in the mm-hmm. modern world map uh which was in the benefit of us all for the first and second world war yeah now in contrast of the second world war the first world war wasn't won by a knockout meaning germany wasn't knocked out of the map germany in fact at the end of the war was keeping all of its territories, and Belgium, and some of France. It was won by points, meaning Germany couldn't go on with the war. And that is one of the reasons of the stab-in-the-back theory that was um, was really known before Second World War, meaning the Jews and the communists betrayed us Germans while our army was victorious in the field. Mm. And this is why we lost. And this is why we lost, because of the Jews, because of the Bolsheviks, because of the profiteers, whom are Jews, of course, and not because our army was weak. Mm -hmm. But the German army, that was the greatest army of the time, was was almost bled white, meaning they lost most of its courage, most of its um, stamina, and the population back home was starving in Germany. We're talking about millions yeah, millions, uh, around 3 million people that died of starvation in Germany during the last phases of First World War, while the army gets all of the supplies that is possible to go on and go on and maintain the fighting without actually gaining any anything out of it. But So was Germany, I just want to understand, was Germany the main player on that side? Because Austro-Hungary is actually the one that started with Serbia. But then you're saying Germany was allied with Austria. Mm-hmm. Were they the main, were they the strongest at power that, on that side? Definitely at that side they were the strongest. They had the biggest and the uh, most elaborate army mm-hmm. of the times, you know, in in uh, contrast of of what we think about um, I'm sorry if I sound uh, you know the German had you go straight right and uh, look right and you don't uh, well actually the German army, army was different from the other armies because um flex more flexible more. exactly exactly the commander in the field could take tactical and almost strategic stra- strategic strategical um decisions based on what he sees in contrast of uh, let's say the um uh british lieutenant that couldn't um go out of what was ordered from above. You needed to go home, and yeah. then uh, they asked the king, and then the <laughs> king says, yes, or, let me call your but, mother. Yeah. <laughs> but no, if we want to, uh, uh, I, I can give a nice recommendation for our listeners to grab a book called The Great Madness by Avigdor Hameiri. Mm-hmm. Avigdor Hameiri was a, a Jewish, uh, Zionist, secular poet, lived in Budapest, and uh, at the outbreak of the war, he enlisted and became uh, a lieutenant. And he wrote about whatever he felt and went through during the war in the Eastern Front in his book called The Great Madness. 
and uh, I think this is one of the best books ever written about First World War. It's fluent, it's touching, and you can actually feel what it is like to be a Jewish soldier, a secular Jewish soldier, during the First World War, and understand the disappointment you get from West, let's call it Western civilization that kills itself and something new must be done. So the sides that are winning winning, are uh, taking the opportunity to reshape the map of the world. Mm -hmm. The most famous, so they do it by occupation, Mm -hmm. right? We see France in Africa. No, how, how, they, I mean, in North Africa, they leading were, to they Palestine. Were, it, yeah, they were there uh, even even long time before that. But uh, I believe you. The battles. Yeah, you, you're referring, I believe, to the Sykes-Picot adream, agreement. Uh, ultimately, <laughs> well, the Sykes-Picot agreement was signed between uh, Britain and France. Well, actually, he, it was signed between Sir Mark Sykes and Gerard Picot of France. A lot of time before one foot of a British or French soldier ever laid on the sand of the Middle East. <laughs> really? Yeah, they they were dividing the uh, let's say the profits of a future something. The uh, that's amazing. The ba- the battles in Gallipoli just started. The uh, campaign in Gallipoli, which is in uh, Turkey of today, um, just the, at the Dardanelles, just started. Uh, mainly British soldiers, but and New Zealanders and Australians, of course, and Mel Gibson in the movie, of course, he was fighting there, and also French troops, some of them, a small portion, and they decided that that is the correct time to divide the Middle East during the uh, in um, let's say in meeting the the interests of the different nations uh, apart which will be a direct French uh, influence, the other one a British one, and uh, a direct influence of the third, of the third part and the fourth part. But actually, the, this division was made uh, many, many days before even one British soldier's... But the idea was to... to sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to divide up the land according to its natural... Uh, tribal or according to the natural inhabitants of the land? I don't think so. No. The people? Okay. No, definitely Because no. there was yeah. no there was no natural way to divide it. It was all a mess of, of, of tribes, people. There was no nationality. Well... Almost. The, uh, yeah, well... Almost. Almost. But there were some groups that at least saw themselves as separate groups. Tribes. You can, Okay, let's talk about tribes. the Kurds, for example. Okay. The Kurds were divided between what we we've got Kurds in Turkey, we've got Kurds in Syria, we've got Kurds Iran, in, in, in Iran. Iraq, and we've got Kurds in Iran. Yeah. So the thought about dividing the land, for example, and giving them you know Kurdistan for those folks, no one thought about that. They were definitely talking or thinking about Western um, Western interests. And so we're talking. The the, wait, let's just m- to make it clear. We're talking about countries like Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and the, Palestine. Mm-hmm. W- when we talk about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and the th- the thing I think it's very very important because when we look at the world today, I think this uh, decision 
is maybe the one that's influencing the world tremendously. Well, Up until today, if you look at the war in Syria, if you look at the refugee problem, if you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you look in the war in Iraq, everything is a direct result. Well, when, when people ask that, me, no? when, well, when people ask me after a lecture, can, can you please talk a little bit about, <clears throat> sorry, about what is going on in Lebanon and Syria and ISIS? And I said, well, the Sykes-Picot agreement is a work in progress <laughs> until today. But, you know, when... Um, During the war, uh, Britain, or the new prime minister, Lloyd George, un, uh, realized that it's not really fair that most of the soldiers getting killed in that frontier are British, and the French are going to take such a big portion of the, fr of the, um, the Middle East. So he gave some kind of an order to Sir Mark Sykes that signed this agreement. We must get a way that we can get the French out of this agreement. No, Sir Sykes had a bit of a problem, but then he met a nice folk, uh, a nice guy in Cairo called Aaron Aronson. Aaron Aronson, one of the, um, one of the establishers and heads of an underground called Nili, uh, up here in uh, Palestine, in Israel. In Ottoman times. Yes, um, some kind of a, an underground that collected information and sent it to the British. And uh, Aaron Aronson whom was a brilliant botanist. He, he um, found the uh, source of wheat that we all eat today. A brilliant guy, really known at the time, was talking to Sir Mark Sykes, and Sir Mark Sykes also said, okay, now this is a good idea. What was the idea? Zionism. Ah, okay. Zionism is a good idea. Another guy he talked to was an Armenian, who also, whom also talked with him about the problems of being an Armenian under the Ottoman Empire, and they also want some kind of a place for their sales. Now, Sir Mark Sykes, people say when you read his early letters, you can say this guy is an anti-Semitic because he used to say that Jews are terrible, but the Armenians are worse. <laughs> and I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, well, and, uh, but Sir Mark, I believe, was some kind of a, you know, had his uh, generation's anti-Semitic uh, view, uh, views and not something uh, that was part of him because beside many of his good characteristics, he had one important one, which is he could change. And he changed his mind about Jews, about Zionism, about Armenians, and he started to be the guy that was, you know, raising the flag of Zionism and rights for Armenians and even rights for Arabs in the Middle East. But and it's kind of ironic because ultimately he's the guy that drew the map which caused many of the conflicts that we're seeing around the world today. Which imposed fake nationalities mm -hmm. on Arabs uh, from different tribes which uh, um, put on the throne people who are close to the crown, right? Like in Jordan... The reason the Hashemi tribe, the Hussein uh, family, got this country is because of their close relations to... With Sharif Hussein, whom was the, um, let's say, the uh, warden of Mecca at the time. Right. But the idea that Arabs would rule themselves, other than Ottoman Turkish Empire ruling them, is a good idea. And the yeah. idea that the Jews will have some kind of a national home at the same place they used to dwell 2,000 years ago... To solve the problem. ...was brilliant. 
And the idea that Armenians that were slaughtered during First World War, the Armenian genocide that happened during the First World War was a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. They will have some kind of uh, relief. Let's just talk about relief. It's a good idea. And combining those three, those three ideas with the fact that you can push the French aside was a great thing for Sir Mark Sykes. And he came back to London and he met with Weizmann, Chaim Weizmann, later the first president of the, of the, land of, of the state of Israel. A very respected a man very in respected England. A very respected man. And they became some kind of friends. And Nahum Sokolov, whom is a brilliant character, unfortunately known only by streets today, mm-hmm. and by, uh, I believe, the um, headquarters of the um, newspaper organization in Israel. It's called Beit yes. Sokolov, uh, Sokolov's House. Nahum Sokol was a brilliant, amazing character. I advise everyone to go on and search for nice books about this guy. He went and got, uh, let's say, acknowledgments from the uh, French government saying it's a beautiful thing to get the Jews back to Israel. He got an, an agreement from the Pope. Now, the Pope, the, the Pope before that met Herzl. And told him, non pusumus in Latin, we cannot do that because God has said that the Jews must go out of Israel. We cannot let them in. But the current Pope that Nahum Sokolov met, after a nice discussion with him, said, it's a wonderful idea. It comes from God. We'll be great neighbors. And now everything was in place for the government of Britain to give some kind of a declaration saying they think it's a good idea S- also. So it's a good time for us to read... Uh, Bal- the Balfour Declaration. Go ahead. It, I, it opens... I'm, uh, this is the opening, right? Yes. It opens with... Uh, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So, first of all, who is this guy, Balfour? Hmm. Otto Balfour was the Earl of Balfour. He was a, a really, let's say, tough nail in the uh, British politics. He was prime minister before that. He was uh, a friend and a foe of Churchill's father, Lord Randolph. And uh, at the time, he's the um, minister of foreign affairs Mm -hmm. in uh, Great Britain. And he is the one that is signed on this petition, on this declaration. He met Weizmann many years before that, when Weizmann was just uh, a postdoctorate uh, young junior professor at the University of Manchester. And uh, he thought that Zionism is a nice idea, is a good idea, it's revolutionary, it's not really something you can do, but it's a good idea. And Weizmann to him was a brilliant man. You, you know, in fact, um, when I was trying to understand myself, what was this special character of Chaim Weizmann? that Otto Balfour uh, fell in his uh, magics. I remember the, um, there's a wonderful TV series in BBC called Who Do You Think You Are? I don't know if you've seen it. But they help 
uh, famous people track down their genealogy. Mm, yeah, and it's it's wonderful. I I cannot understand why they're not doing it here because mm-hmm. we all have such an amazing <laughs> yeah. genealogy. And one um, one episode was with Stephen Fry, mm-hmm. this wonderful writer and comedian. And Stephen f- was talking about his grandfather. Now his grandfather was an Hungarian Jew, even though Stephen Fry looks like the most British thing <laughs> that can actually happen. His grandfather was an Hungarian Jew. And he said, while other grandfathers were talking with this, some kind of a subtextual British way of, yeah, it was quite nice. And we went there and it was lovely. And his grandfather was talking about beautiful and wonderful and magnificent. I love you. And Passionate. Yeah. And I think Chaim Weizmann, even though being a famous and really interesting and really serious um, uh, scientist, was also, after all, an East European Jew. Like a, a Jewish mother. And he was some kind of, a, let's say, a, a, a silk fabric inside a closet full of tweed. Uh-huh. It was something you cannot, uh, uh, n- you cannot not see. I mean, And it, not love. And not love, exactly. And Otto Balfour, who was also very religious, uh, thought that this man, with his passion, with his seriousness and the idea of getting the Jews back to the Holy Land after 2,000 years is a great idea. Now, Otto Balfour was uh, single. Uh, this is how they called it. Then. Um, he was single. He was on Tinder? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> he was single. And uh, this is why, by the way, the current Earl of Balfour, the sixth Earl of Balfour, Roderick, is um, not really a straight descendant of Otto. He's the grandson or the great-grandson of his brother okay um Arthur wasn't really interested in many things besides british politics he took mortgage after mortgage over his um uh, their estate uh leading to the fact that the sixth earl today uh well of now or the current one told me that um because of these mortgages he came to a, a conference about a month ago via EasyJet and not uh, <laughs> at first class. Seriously, they still pay the, the debts. I guess, I guess. Uh, we all are paying the debts of Otto Balfour. And uh, so Otto Balfour wasn't the only guy involved. Uh, Lloyd George, a prime minister, a very interesting man because he's not one of those posh, tough, high society, upper class guys. He was born to a Welsh miner in Manchester. He's from the Labour Party. Well, the Labour Party, he was a liberal. He was a liberal. And he uh, went on and studied law Mm -hmm. and went to be a politician. It wasn't his first meeting with Zionism. In fact, he was the solicitor helping Herzl with all of the legal stuff uh, around the Uganda uh, proposal. proposal. But when he met Chaim Weizmann, he also fell in his charm and he was all in for Zionism and for British, um, let's say, British interests in Palestine. And for the Jews in Israel, in Palestine, I guess this year of 17 was tremendous. Not only they got rid of, of the Turks mm-hmm. and got the Brits... Uh, later on, they found out it's not a paradise as, as they thought. But also they get this declaration, mm-hmm. which is like, uh, you know, it's an injection of energy for them because up until then, as they say in Hebrew, they spat blood. Mm-hmm. 
trying to survive and make it in the Middle East. And actually, the Balfour Declaration was celeb- celebrated every year uh, in synagogues and outside. And even if you go to Mount Olives and look at the grave of Eliezer ben Yehuda, the one that revived, the linguistic that revived... And whose grandson was here, Gil Chovav. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, if you look at his, at his uh, headstone, it's, um, it says his name. And the date of his uh, of his death, so and so years for the Balfour Declaration. Wow! Meaning that was almost celebrated as the new count, like yes. you know, Anosomi A.D. and we've got the the Balfour D. or whatever. Right, right, uh, and rightfully Anosomi. so. In the end of the day, that was the number one claim we had up until the actual um, establishment of the state. For but but wh- how did I mean? You spoke about this at the beginning a little bit. How did the British? Empire. I mean, it was you know slowly turning into the, the British at nation the, at the beginning of the war. It was the, uh, the the British Empire was ruling a third of the earth, a wow. third. So Europe I guess, was ruling ninety eight percent, but they were ruling a third of the population of the earth, which is amazing. I yeah. guess that kind of answers my question because I was going to ask, how do they have the audacity to you know say, okay, we can declare this land? the allotted land for the future Jewish people, but I will expand it that kind of though. I will expand it and ask the Brits ruling thirty percent of the world's mm-hmm. population. They thought Palestine's you know, it's Palestine. But little did they know that this small portion of their kingdom would be such a cause for like eighty percent of of their trouble. <laughs> in the in the in the upcoming years isn't it right well winston churchill said that um dealing with the middle east is like living <clears throat> winston churchill said that um dealing with the middle east is like living on an ungrateful volcano <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually yeah the, the the middle east caused a lot of trouble for the uh british men mandate- for the british nation but also I believe that both sides actually benefited from the mandate that was here, and not just them. I believe that uh, historians in the future would s- maybe even see some resemblance of whatever happened here and in India, and uh, the freedom of India, and the liberation of Israel, and all of that, the, the uh, bits and pieces breaking from the huge... Empire cake of the British Empire, leaving the United Kingdom of today not 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 a corpse, meaning but a a state that can actually think about Brexit. So even though we broke pieces out of it, it remained a whole. I which believe which not a lot of empires can say. Yeah, definitely. Which not most a lot of, of them empires. fall with their as they start to crumble. Most of them fall. Definitely. But I have to say that it kind of has a nice little uh, um, concentrated bit of British audacity in that quote that you had of Winston Churchill, <laughs> the uh, the ungrateful because vo- why should a volcano be grateful? Because <laughs> 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 I mean it's ridiculous. <laughs> But it's also it's also showing that he truly understood the magnitude of power yeah. that this region has. That no matter what you do, it's bubbling underneath the earth and waiting to erupt. So, Kobe, let's talk a little bit about you before we we go, because y- you're doing lectures mm-hmm. here in Tel Aviv, yeah. and Tel Aviv has become, I think, in the last two or three years, 
um, an empire of lectures. Yeah, isn't it so? It's it's fascinating. There are a few uh, a few uh, like the TED culture. Yeah, has took over our well, city. I'm actually I'm not. I, I don't really know if it's not happening in other places of the world, but I can definitely say that in Tel Aviv, almost, not almost, every evening you can find some kind of a culture of a lecture about history, about sociology, psychology, science, um, pop culture, and it's wonderful. It's like people are looking for things to do. <laughs> I mean, going to the movies is nice, but people are looking for something else. To enrich themselves. To enrich themselves, to find something that is more, that you can connect to different subjects, not just by, you know, TV, sitting on your couch and binging whatever it is on Netflix or TV, but looking left, looking right, and seeing other people that love the same thing as you do, which is brilliant to me and it's not just Tel Aviv I must say I'm going I give lectures in Haifa I was all in Beersheba and Jerusalem so it's spend it's it's expanding and it's a beautiful thing so what's the best way to find out where you're lecturing and what lectures you're giving um <clears throat> well first of all there are a few um programs of lectures in Tel Aviv the, the biggest and the oldest one called think and drink and they have their Facebook page that you can uh, update about le different lectures. Most of them in Hebrew, some of them in English. You do do English lectures I, here I and there. I do do English here and there. Yeah, usually, especially for for you know groups. But mm -hmm. yeah, definitely, uh, if people ask, I'm coming and and giving lectures in in Hebrew and English, of course. And uh, folks can go into my website, which which is in Hebrew, but. Um, well, now you have an excuse to do an English yeah, website. Yeah, I must. Oh, <laughs> damn. Yeah. But he's on I have Facebook. To go back and start translating everything. But on <laughs> Facebook, he's called Kobe Hubara with yeah. an H. Yeah. And uh, before we go, I want to tell you that we have two collaborations. One is with the Jewish Journal mm. of Greater Los Angeles, which is a great uh, newspaper and a website for Jewish, Jewish news. And the and other? The second one is with Secret Tel Aviv, which is a Facebook group that has 160, almost 170,000 yeah, members. Yeah, it's a great group. Great, you know about it. it. Yeah, of course. So it's a great group for recommendations for restaurants, events, whatever, and just to, you know, kind of see funny posts. And a website. And, and they, they have, have a website, oh. secrettelaviv.com. And that is it. I mean, we only barely touched, you know, the, the subject. The tip of the iceberg. The, yeah. Oh, well, the folks back home don't know, but we're going to end this uh, broadcast and sit and have another coffee, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's Absolutely. talk about the Second World War. Yeah. <laughs> and the third one. Oh, well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kobe. It was fascinating. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye.